This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Mr. Miyagi getting ready to heal Daniel Sun. <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. That faint chuckling you heard in the background should give up the ghost of what's going on here. We have returning the most frequent guest on The Remnant and the most frequent guest host of The Remnant. Um, he's basically, I mean, who was Johnny's number one guest host? Was it, uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to say Bill Cosby. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, 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 I believe um, it was, um, I'm drawing a blank on her name. She was fashion critic, hilarious comedian. We're look look at look at us. We've we've already run into a chuck hole. We're 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 two minutes into it, uh, but I think it was Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers. I was I was literally about to Google famous female comedians and Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling is a big one. I think Steve Martin did it a bit. You know, Steve Martin did it, uh, and of course Jay Leno. The Jay Leno, yeah. the um, reassuringly unfunny Jay Leno. Yes, but he makes up for it with chin. That's right. So anyway, uh, it's lovely to have you here. <laughs> I was a oh, uh, News Nation politics poobah columnist for the Dispatch, colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, um, and uh, um, um, and fellow uh, Gen Gen X nostalgist. Um, right. So, so uh, I've been meaning to give you grief about this for a very long time. I mentioned oh, it no. on a solo podcast at some point. Oh no! So. Uh, both loved and was extremely jealous that you got Mike Duncan to come on to talk about Rome amidst all of mm. the uh, men constantly thinking about Rome chatter from a few months ago. And and your setup was great for it. It was like, men, you know, this, this viral TikTok thing has become this thing about how men spend so much of the time of their day or their week thinking about Rome. And so we thought we would have Mike Duncan on here to talk about Rome. And then you never asked him, why do you think people, why do you think men think so much about Rome? Who was like the guy to have on to ask that question of? Well, for, first, let me say, it is a privilege always to be with fair, you. Fair, fair. 
Uh, and you, you. that uh, I, I like to think of myself as the crescent role of uh, the remnant. Uh, useful for any occasion, reliable, and you can keep me in the fridge. And if it's Thanksgiving and you need a pastry, you just pop me right out, put me on the cookie sheet. It is, it is a role. It is a role <laughs> that I relish. Um, <laughs> I didn't, I, I should have probably asked Mike Duncan that, but the question I, I would have, I would have phrased it this way. Why do you think we think we think so much about Rome? Because I don't know that men think about Rome as much as uh, popular culture currently suggests. Is do you think that I I think it's I think it's overstated. What do you think? So I don't know. I mean, I am in the team think about Rome at least once a day mm -hmm, camp. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have been basically ever since I wrote Suicide of the West, or maybe ever since. Rome's uh, HBO's Rome show came out. I don't. I don't know, but I've been on a. It, it takes up. It has serious. It has significant real estate in my head. Um, and but then I meet people who I would think it was true also of, and they're like, "What are you talking about? You know statistics and sampling better than I do, right?" There's a selection bias thing. The people who stormed the social media to say it's me. I'm like this. They were motivated to say it, while the people who aren't like that just stayed quiet. So it gave it a disproportionate feel, maybe. I mean, yeah, so you might be right. I, I, I for me, um, my most recent obsession with Rome, my my juvenile or younger obsession with Rome, uh, like a lot of people, probably centered on the movie Gladiator, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that gave that that was a key, that was a, a way in for me back then, but. Um, it was for me, uh, I don't know, five years ago, 10 years ago, I, I reread or actually read A World Lit Only by Fire, William Manchester's mm -hmm. um, history of the, of the medieval era of the Middle Ages. And the, uh, that led me back. All roads lead to Rome. And that, that definitely led me back. But I would think that Maybe I'm. Maybe this is uh, my age speaking, but when I think about dudes thinking about history, I think dudes think about World War II a lot, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and I think dudes think about the Civil War a lot. But maybe I'm. May, maybe that's an American bias. Maybe that is my bias toward American history. I, I certainly think you could have had a viral moment where some woman says, oh my gosh, my boyfriend tells me that he thinks about World War II at least once a day. Because I probably think about World War II, maybe not once a day, but three times a week. You know, yeah. it just comes into your head kind of thing. Um, um, so I don't know. I mean, there was a time when, you know, the zombie apocalypse came into my head. I mean, the truth is you should probably count the amount of time it wasn't in my head. Um, you definitely, you definitely went on a journey with zombies. I also think Rome is safe. It's far enough back that it is not tinged by modern politics, right? If you're talking about the Civil War, you're talking about slavery, you're mm -hmm. talking about bup, 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 all those things. Rome, at a remove of 1,500 to 2,000 years, uh, is is far enough back that I think, and Mike Duncan 
does this. Um, I think a lot of historians do it. You can explore the politics and issues and history of Rome, make parallels to modern times, but not get sucked right into the vortex of, oh yeah, well, it was really the Democrats or anything like that. My take on it is that it's more like a parallel universe in your head, right? It's like, okay, so this is like the superstructure of like how societies work or mind, our minds work or politics work if we had gone on this other path. And it's sort of like the parallel universe thing in, in the original the original one, in the, the, the parallel universe where Spock has a goatee in Star Trek. The similarities are as interesting as the differences. And it's kind of like this sort of acid test for you to think about how the, the world around you and what's illusory and what's, what's real and permanent. And, and that's sort of how it gets into my head. But I know lots of dudes who just like to think about gladiatorial fights. So, I mean, it's different, different strokes for different folks. That's, and that's, by the way, how you have the dispatch interns settle disputes. I think people should know. It's a net. It's a trident. It's, it's real. Yeah, although the real impulse for that was that scene in Dark Knight where the Joker breaks the pool cue and says we're going to have tryouts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we should do a little punditry before we mm, get back mm. to the important stuff. The GOP primary, which is still... It's contrary to anything you might say is technically still going on. seems to be boiling down to a two-person race as foretold in the Shanshu prophecy. The fighting between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, which I think has been stupid for a very long time, um, in the way that politics is like normally, in like like in the, in the before times, politics would be stupid. And you say, okay, this is stupid. Like the idea that either of them are going to be lick spittles to China, I just find to be just sort of tedious. Regardless, the na the fighting is getting a little nasty. We're starting to see the whole, did you know that Nikki Haley is the daughter of immigrants and Nikki's not her real name? Um, start to get pushed out there. Big if true. Big if true. How do you think that's shaping up? Ron DeSantis w got the endorsement of uh, Vanderplatz. And before that, the uh, Kim Reynolds. Nikki is getting the Kaching kaching endorsement of a lot of donors. Um, how do you think it's shaping up? I think you could say that Ron DeSantis is a better version of 2016 Ted Cruz, and Nikki Haley is a better version of 2016 John Kasich. Uh, and they have they the the grooves the the wagon ruts in the road are well laid um, and. You see a lot of the cruisism in DeSantis. And by the way, DeSantis's campaign was built to go up against somebody like Nikki Haley, right? That's the, that's, that's the idea, which is that's, and that's the kind of candidate he beat in 2018 in the Republican primary in Florida, right? Uh, DeSantis is a populist favorite if he's up against a traditional conservative, right? Um, and that the attacks on her connections to corporate America, her attack, his attacks on her as basically uh, old fashioned, he's made for that fight. He was not, as it turns out, at all well made for the fight against Donald Trump. Right. That's just that that was that was a big failure. And the strategic failure of DeSantis of believing and we've talked about it before, but uh, Jeff Rowe, his, uh, the leader of his super PAC and, um, that, and DeSantis, his own campaign started out with the uh, wrong premise, which is we'll blow up Trump's base and have so much vote share 
that we don't need to worry about, we can call it the Kasich lane or whatever you want to call it. But that's the 25% of the Republican Party that is anti-Trump plus whatever share of the moderate or persuadable part of the party that just wants to basically win, right? This is less ideological than cultural. It's less ideological uh, than, than pragmatic. And DeSantis did not pay enough attention to that part, attacked Trump early, failed in attacking Trump, uh, immediately, not, in, the, in a matter of weeks, gave up all of, you know, half of his support back to Trump, basically. Um, and then he went through the long, long period of suffering and now is deploying. I'm assuming that he secured um, Kim Reynolds' endorsement in Iowa long ago. Uh, and it was, we've got to wait until we're closer for it to be useful. We've got to wait until we get there. So this is the fight that DeSantis has been getting ready for, for a year, for two years, except it comes after having failed in the first part of the strategy, bust up Trump, and then go kick around the traditional conservatives or moderates or whatever, demonstrate your dominance, and then cruise to victory. What is what we're heading for now is a scenario in which, and I don't rule out the possibility that that DeSantis could win Iowa. He could win Iowa. Iowa has a real volatile electorate. We don't know how many of the Trump folks really would show up to caucus. It takes a long time. It's annoying. But we are set up right now for a DeSantis, Iowa, Haley, New Hampshire, finishing second. Uh, and then the two of them ripping each other's faces off for 32 days on the way to South Carolina. That's the scenario in which that's the, oh, and by the way, with Vivek Ramaswamy along the way, doing the wet work for Trump, right? Uh, magnifying each attack from Haley to DeSantis and from DeSantis to Haley. That would get a similar result as the Cruz-Kasich uh, showdown that happened when, a sim when similar events played out in 2016. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So the way I've been thinking about it, um, and I, I very much like the point, which I had not thought of, that is that this is like the second stage plan kicking in, but they failed the first stage plan, which is, I think, right. And there will be seminars for years about why the first stage plan didn't work. The way I've been thinking about it is DeSantis is better placed to unify the existing GOP coalition. Um, and Haley is better placed to forge 
a winning presidential coalition. Do you think that's right? I I don't think that ideology matters that much. I don't think that it I'm not basing that on ideology. I'm basing it on like animal spirits. Like there are people there there are like independents, squishy uh Republican or former Republican suburban people who are just not scared of Nikki Haley the way they're scared of of Ron DeSantis. And those people are kind of necessary. And also like I think Charlie Cook was the first guy to make this point. Uh, British Charlie Cook, um, Roundhead mm-hmm. Charlie Cook. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That uh, Nikki Haley is closest to generic Republican, and generic Republican is the most powerful form of politician in America today. Right. You know, that's my point about and, her being better for a general election coalition. I, the yes, um, on on that point, absolutely. Uh, of of any of the contenders, of any of the three. Uh, contenders for Republicans, she's pretty clearly the best choice. Um, she's pretty clearly the best choice for her genericness. Um, and I wrote about this uh, for the Dispatch um, last week. Her greatest asset is that she is not well defined. Now that is a problem because as you get def- as you as you run for president, you get defined. Uh, but she has basically thirty percent or so. Uh, Americans don't know enough about her to have an opinion about her. And that's good um, because there's a chance that they'll break. If, if, if they just broke even, right, if, uh, if 15% decided they didn't like her and 15% decided that they did, she'd be way ahead of Trump and Biden and DeSantis in terms of public opinion, public attitudes about her. Um, I think that being a woman would be very helpful for Republicans at this point. And also, of course, if she somehow survived, um, she would have borne the scars of being attacked for being moderate, right? She would spend the next three or four months being attacked inside the Republican Party by Trump and DeSantis as being too moderate, too mainstream. And that's very helpful, right, Um, when you get to the general election, if you survive it. Um, I, I think what it really comes down to is this, though. Ron DeSantis obviously hates running for president. He is obviously uncomfortable. He obviously does not like... I think Ron DeSantis likes government. I think he likes being the governor of Florida. I think he likes that stuff. But I think he hates politics and seems very unhappy and very uncomfortable doing it. I believe it was Ben Smith wrote it, and I'm sorry if it wasn't, if it was someone else. But it was a really useful piece recounting Nikki Haley's 2010 victory in South Carolina. I think that was him. I remember it very well. It was astonishingly awful, Mm -hmm. right? Um, accusations of infidelity and sexist, gross, slime. Republican politics in South Carolina are awful. And the guy who's now the governor of South Carolina, Henry McMaster, um, uh, you know, he he blew out all the stops to really blow up Nikki Haley. And the establishment of uh, South Carolina politics was against her. And so was the sort of the Cruzian chunk, uh, this is obviously before, but the Cruzian chunk, uh, was, was hard on her and she made it through. I don't know how much Nikki Haley enjoys government, 
but she evidently likes the hurly burly of politics. Mm -hmm. And you have to, you, you have to draw something from it. If Ron DeSantis did not always look like uh, he was having a catheter inserted when he was uh, running for office. Orifice. (laughs) Um, He would not have the problems that he has because people are, and you can see it when you look at people, uh, this is true of focus groups that I've done uh, and, and the polling reflects a lot of it. There's not a lot of ideological valence within people's first choice and second choice. Voters, especially within primaries, are responding to the person, right? It's much more, oh, I like that person. I don't like that person. And DeSantis just, he really, he really struggles there. I mean, I've been saying on here forever that I think the real DeSantis isn't the, I'm not sure he believes it, but the crazy culture war stuff, the very online stuff, I I think that's in his head. But the actual DeSantis is the grumpy, wonky guy who read medical papers about COVID and came to his own conclusions or the guy who got the bridge open really fast. I mean, I think to his credit, you know, I've been saying, I, I can't take it back now. I've been saying for 20 years that the thing that drives me crazy most about Republican politicians is the ones who don't do their homework. Sarah Palin, Rick Perry, Fred Thompson, these guys had this organic, charismatic relationship with voters, but they just didn't do their homework. They just didn't know answers to basic questions and like what their policies would be. And I find that sort of un, basically unpatriotic and unforgivable. Like you're running for president of the United States, read the binder, right? Read, do your homework. Well, but, but I think here you can break that into two subgroups. Sarah Palin was in an enthusiastic ignoramus. Uh, she, uh, like Trump, um, it, it was scornful of knowledge and research and all of that stuff, right? That's for eggheads. That was a, the the George Wallace, you know, these pointy heads looking down their noses at us. Uh, we're not going to take instructions from somebody who couldn't park a bicycle straight, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And, uh, but then you have people like Fred Thompson, and this is the, that's the peril for that politicians like Haley face. And she obviously is a hard worker. Fred Thompson know, knew a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm was very smart, had been deeply steeped since uh, working for um, uh, Baker uh, and on the Watergate committee. And he was around all of that stuff. He just didn't want to do the work. Right. right? Now, he was burnt out. He just wanted to phone it in. I agree. I mean, like he didn't want to do the hustle side. Right. Right. The, the pressing the flesh. And I think DeSantis is that guy. I think that's right. I think that's right. He doesn't he doesn't have. Like if Mitt Romney could have bought the charismatic relationship with the voters, he would have, yes. right? He would have written yes. that check. Sometimes you can't do that, right? I mean, and I think Mitt Romney was perfectly ha- happy to press the flesh. He's a charming guy in person and all that kind of stuff, but he just didn't have that connection. DeSantis right. doesn't have the connection and he also is not happy to press the flesh. So it's really, that's right. it's a double, double problem. I can't remember who told me this story. I don't think it was you, but maybe it was. And if it was, and if it was confidential, we'll just cut it out. But someone had told me a story about how Fred Thompson had a major fundraiser for his presidential campaign. They couldn't find him anywhere. It was at some rich guy's house. And finally, his aides, they go upstairs and they find him alone on a bed in one of the master bedrooms watching t- watching the football game. Fantastic. Which makes me like the guy. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> but like, immediately, <laughs> immediately makes me wish that he had been president. Yeah, but it's like, 
but you can't do that when you're running for president. You know? Yeah. How, how you, how you get there. It's very hard for people in politics to give up the things that made them successful in the first place. Mm -hmm. And we see it again and again and again. This is what took me there. Now I've got to change. Now I've got to change course and, and come at this a different way. Nikki Haley has benefited enormously from being underestimated. Uh, she benefited enormously from being underestimated in 2010 uh, and had, has, has risen to second place or third place uh, from fifth or sixth place on the basis of being underestimated. And her spitfire routine at the first Republican debate uh, and her sassy boss lady energy uh, that she has brought to the campaign trail, she, she defied expectations. Now the question for her is, okay, you got the luck. They're looking in. The people are looking at you. They're going to evaluate you. They're going to see how you do. And um, as I observed, the ill-conceived and poorly executed launch of a new policy on social media anonymity is a great example. When you're in sixth place, say whatever you want. Nobody cares, right? The, as Vivek Ramaswamy found out, whatever. Oh, you're going to raise the voting age to 25? You're going to, you know, whatever. That, up next, a crazy idea <laughs> from a long shot candidate. He's here to tell us about it. It's fine. But then when you get the, when you get a look from voters and you get a look from the media, the the bar goes way up. And of course, Trump had a different bar because he didn't need to get famous. Trump was already famous as fa he was. Uh, I wrote he's the most famous person uh, since Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, to be a first time, and he wasn't really a first time because he ran really before in 2020, stipulate, stipulate, but really, really the the most famous first time presidential candidate uh, since Dwight Eisenhower, albeit for very different reasons. But Trump was, uh, was working his leverage in reverse. He was sharing his celebrity. I always think of the Mark Halperin uh, and John Heilman riding on a Zamboni at the woman ice rink with Donald Trump when Donald Trump was a, just a long shot candidate. And here they are, the three of them huddled on the back of the Zamboni asking those tough questions like, what's a day like for yeah, you? Yeah. What is it like to be Donald Trump? He got easier treatment because he was leveraging his celebrity uh, to get into politics as opposed to trying to get famous uh, from in politics to out, the Obama versus Trump celebrity model. For Haley, she has to be careful now. And it's hard to be careful when you're still trying to get famous, right? Um, it's really hard to be careful because you're just, you're looking for stuff, you're doing stuff, but she can't afford that, that misstep on social media. She, that's one, but she can't afford many, right? If she blows up a couple more times, DeSantis, I'll put it this way. If you were just setting Vegas odds, who will be the runner-up for the Republican nomination today? You'd make Ron DeSantis the favorite. I think the the trend can help Haley, 
but you'd say, yeah, DeSantis is the cruise here, right? He's he's the one that will hang in with Trump the longest. He's from a big state. He he'll he, he can he can hang in here longer. He's more famous. Um, and that's what you'd say. So she has a very tricky effort here to, to climb over this fence without putting a foot wrong. And she certainly can do it. And she has, as we talked about from South Carolina, the skill set to do it, but it's tough. Now, I, I, I generally agree with that. I, 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 have, I have a slightly different view on the, I agree with you, it was a misstep, the, the anonymity. And for listeners who don't know, what happened was Nikki Haley was on some daytime Fox show and said something about how um, you shouldn't be allowed to do social media anonymously and that she's going to require everyone to use their real names and the real identity. And people blew up. Federalist papers were written anonymously, yada, yada, yada. And then, um, and of course, all the anonymous accounts that love DeSantis lost their minds. And right. um, uh, and then so she clearly backtracked, said, oh, I'm talking about foreign bots, not about American citizens. I agree with you. It was a misstep. She clearly had to fix it. On the other hand, if you're going to have a misstep about something, I don't think this one was that bad. Because A, a right? She's there's kind of a subtext to it where she is a concerned mom about what like social media is doing to people's brains. Right. That's sort of the vibe of that thing. B, it kind of signals that she was, you know, anti-China TikTok on the whole thing. And C, the number of people in America who actually really care about the ability to be anonymous on on the interwebs is freaking tiny. They're just incredibly overrepresented on social media because that's why they care about it, right? And so, I mean, like, like the whole Twitter is not the real world thing played into this to make it seem like a much bigger deal than I think it actually was. I, I don't think uh, that it is into itself a big deal, particularly because she cleaned it up the next day. Oh, no, no, no. She, she went from Fox to CNBC and uh, between the two, well, what I'm just talking about is the foreign ones. And she was already cleaning it up. My point is, I don't think that that has a material effect on many votes, right? Uh, certainly not among, yes, uh, for DeSantis people hating her more. Yes, absolutely. Does it give ammunition to them? Sure. But you're right. My point is, it was a little, for me, useful in explaining how hard it is to do this. Because if you want to float policy when you're a long shot, it doesn't get scrutinized. Once you become a contender, you face a different, you, you face a different lens. And uh, if the net effect for this is, hey, it will be, it will be a net good for her if the effect on her campaign is to say, okay, we're not freelancing any more policy on the Faulkner focus on weekday afternoons on Fox and Friends or on Fox. If we have policies that we want to roll out, we're going to vet them. We're going to nail them down. We're going to talk about how we're going to talk about them. And we're going to have our policy people. Because, again, you're going from a smaller campaign to a larger campaign. The money starts to flow in. And you, so you've got to build it out. Um, but to to an analogy that has often been used before, it's like repairing your engine while you're driving 70 miles an hour down the interstate. It's tricky. All right, let's get off the primaries. Enough of the primaries. I feel like I'm obliged to do some Biden and Trump punditry. Biden just celebrated his 
81st, I wouldn't say he celebrated it. He marked right. his 81st birthday. Did you see that cake? I did. My goodness. I don't understand people sometimes. They put a lot of candles on it. It, lo- it, it looked like the campfire, and Joe Biden looked terrified. <laughs> he looked like he might, he, he, his, his general fire marshal Bill vibe was not helped by having a towering inferno of fondant in front of him. How did he even get into this? Biden's old. Biden's old. Breaking. Biden's old. Yes. And he will not get younger. Democrats are freaking out, but not in front of cameras for the most part. Let's skip all the punishry about why he can't have Kamala Harris run because we know she's not. Pop- she's even less popular. I'll put it this way: I, I talk me out of this. I look at Trump and I say, "There's no way this guy can win." Then I look at Biden and I say, "Man, this guy could lose." Right? So, yep. How, how are you looking at this stuff? A year out, polls don't matter, yada yada yada. But the polls do matter because they're directional and yada yada. yada. And I, I find the whole thing. It's really important, but it's also for our, because this is the life we have chosen. But I also find it exhausting. Well, um, Biden is taking a lot of incoming for his support for Israel, and um, younger voters are angry at Joe Biden. So the uh, NBC News poll, uh, which used to be the Wall Street Journal NBC News poll before the Wall Street Journal got out and hired Trump's pollster to be its Republican pollster which was an interesting Mm -hmm. choice. Mm -hmm. But the NBC poll, which is one of my favorites, one of the best, looked at Biden's shrinking support, and it got a lot of headlines for its shrinking support. But when you look at Biden versus Trump head-to-head, and this was the first NBC poll where Biden trailed Trump. It was by two points. And Trump gained basically no ground from July when Biden was winning. But Biden dropped five points. When you look at job approval among Democrats, uh, particularly among younger Democrats, it is very obvious to me that Israel is driving the thing, right? Uh, as you say, it's it's a surprise to no one that Joe Biden is old. It is, it is his single greatest liability in winning a second term is that he is obviously too old to run for president. And it's... Uh, it, it, it was, I believe, an irresponsible choice of Joe Biden to seek a second term. And of, of his wife and those people around him, um, you know, the story of this election would be very different if after the midterm elections, Joe Biden had said, hey, guys, we did better than, than we thought we were going to do. And uh, things are going OK. That's why I'm going to step aside now and let Kamala Harris and J.B. Pritzker and Gavin Newsom and Gretchen Whitmer go fight it out. They're going to go fight it out, and I'm going to be happy to endorse whomever Democratic voters choose. And then went off and had a fun lame duck with Mitch McConnell uh, trying to pass some budget measures or whatever. he Whatever would delight uh, Joseph R. Biden the most. They would look good together whittling and drinking lemonade. Oh, I can, de- and the uh, the Pepperidge Farm remembers, <laughs> but much like the surprise victory in Georgia in the runoff elections there for Democrats that gave him a Senate majority in 2020, the surprising lack of failure uh, for Democrats in 2022 
told Biden and told Democrats, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe dark Brandon's working. Maybe this is working. And I think had the expected thrashing come, the pressure on Biden from himself and from others to step aside would have been huge, right? A Joe Biden who got a shellacking in midterms would not have been, it wouldn't have been as easy for him to stand pat. But this, that's, that's where they are. When you look at that poll, the significant things are where Biden's losses are, and they're among Democrats, right? He's, 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 Trump isn't doing better. Trump, Trump's floor in an, in a general election is 45%. Trump's ceiling in a general election is 47%, right? That's, that's, that's the space where he is. There's a lot more slack in the line for Biden. So that's one thing. And of course, that looks very different when Democrats come to accept. I heard Michael Che say on Saturday Night Live, um, which was, uh, he's going to win. Right? He said it as an aside. You know he's going to win. And as soon as that dread, the sickening dread in the hearts of younger Democrats comes into focus, it will change their willingness to beef with Biden over Israel or whatever else. That's, that's true. And, and then there's this. When you look at the poll, pollsters asked Trump versus generic Democrat and Biden versus generic Republican. The shift is, is notable, right? Because Trump versus generic Democrat uh, Trump loses. But Biden versus generic Republican, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, Trump for the other way around. If you take Biden out, it has a much more salubrious uh, effect. Uh, it, I'm sorry, I've now butchered this five different ways. Your takeaway is Trump is a bigger drag on Republicans than Biden is on Democrats. Replacing Trump is more has a more significant effect on the electorate than replacing Biden. A generic Republican, as you said at the beginning of this, a generic Republican crushes, right? A generic, now no candidate is generic, but the willingness for the country to have somebody who is not so old to be in power is palpable, is real. They're more than ready to, to take a chance on that. And when you see what a drag Trump is on Republicans, it's, um, I, I think it would be unfair to say that only Trump could lose to Biden because DeSantis could lose to Biden. Haley could lose to Biden. But Trump is far and away the riskiest bet against a vulnerable incumbent. But I think the Republican electorate is not willing to abandon Trump because they feel like it would be giving in to Biden and the media, right? Uh, the, the defiant act of supporting Donald Trump. We don't care. You can indict him. You, you can indict him 191 times. We don't care. You're not making us back down. Um, I think that's a big chunk of it. And the other chunk of it is significant. And I think you saw in the uh, cataclysm around the House speakership. The plurality of Republicans just want somebody, right? Just be done. We don't want to fight. And the idea for a lot of Republicans of we're going to have a long contested contest. We're going to fight. Um, we think of Ted Cruz and his 
lame speech at the Republican convention in 2016. Remember, vote your conscience. He got the next day to the uh, state Republican or the st- the delegates from Texas went to a breakfast the next day and they booed him. Boo, <laughs> boo, <laughs> boo, because they just want people to get along and they just want unity and they want to go deal with the Democrats. Trump running is basically the incumbent gets that right. That's that. OK, look, it's going to be Trump. Let's not fight him. Let's just go. And um, when you combine actual MAGA plus uh, anti, what do we call it? Anti, anti-Trump uh, Republicans. Right. And then the can't this just be done, that gets you to half of the party. I was going to do more punditry, but I want to change the topic slightly. I had this disagreement with uh, uh, Ryan Salam, who I'm on this new Chris Wallace show with a uh, couple, oh, t- yeah. couple times a month. Congratulations. What a nice, what a nice thing. What a good thing. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's still got its sea legs, but uh, generally it's, it's smarter television than a lot of television. And it's, uh, and it's Talk nice about that- damning with faint praise. Well, true, true. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I don't love doing television anymore. I'm not, I am not the, uh, the, stylish Beau Brummel savant of the silver screen the way you are. Just some crescent rolls over here. Just that's all, it's all it takes, Jonah. You are, you are like a, a, a bowl of fine sourdough. I'm, I, I am but a, 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 a moldable pastry mm-hmm. placed on a baking sheet. Okay. Well, we are going to go deep into uh, baked goods analogies and puns in a moment. But first, um, uh, bula bula. Um, uh, so we part of our part of my disagreement I had to have off camera, but like, um, we did this segment, which I think is entirely worthwhile segment about what to make of Donald Trump's increasingly gross language, right? The vermin, retribution, yada yada yada, and um, I think it was Rahan, but like one of the points that was made, which I think is just generally right, is that a lot of liberals are freaking out about it less because Donald Trump is saying it and more because voters aren't turned off by it, right? There's, there's something that freaks people out, but understandably, right? It's like, wait, the president, the, guy, the former president of the United States running for office again is vowing to eliminate the vermin um, in, in this country. And I still think that the line that Trump said that it's the preface to the vermin thing that is more damning and dangerous, where he said Our, the foreign threats in the United States pale in significance to the threats from people at home, right? So he is the one who is actually saying in terms of actual enemies of the United States of America, other Americans are worse than Hamas or Russia or China or, or any, or other terrorist groups or whatever. And that's repugnant and indefensible, but I don't think a lot of people's ears pick up on it. Anyway, the point being, um, I have this theory which is not a defense of Trump. I think my record on Trump is pretty good, Um, at least pretty well known. But that this idea that the Republican Party is turning into a fascistic authoritarian party, which, again, I want to stipulate, there are reasons why reasonable people worry about that. Fine, right? That said, I think one of the ways to test whether or not the evidence that people muster for that proposition is to ask, okay, what would happen to Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or Vivek Ramaswamy or any other Republican candidate 
if they talked about how the vermin in the government will be eliminated, um, I'm going to uh, put all of my political opponents uh, on trial. Um, they're worse threats to the republic than any foreign terrorist. It would destroy their campaigns instantaneously. And so the point I'm making is that it, and it's a difficult, it's a difficult point to make because it sounds like you're defending Trump and I am not defending Trump and I'm not defending people who love hearing this garbage from him. But at the same time, as a matter of objective analysis, I think people process Trump's statements as a form of entertainment more than they do other candidates. And, and so it's not necessarily ideological, it's not ideological agreement or receptivity. It's like, oh, that's Trump. And, you know, like, you you don't understand. I have this secret understanding of Trump. He doesn't really mean these things. Sure, he goes off the literally, rails. but not ser seriously, but not all that literally. garbage, right? And yes. and so it just makes it very very difficult for me to sort of score this out properly. Um, what is your view on it? Like, should we take it? How seriously should we take him talking about the vermin and the scum and yada yada yada? Well, if Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination again and wins the presidency again, um, I'll be in my sprinter. It, it will be, <laughs> it will be, um, history will remember uh, for as long as there is history, the consequences for the Republic. I'm, I'm very sure. A Trump one-off, eh, Zachary Taylor, whatever. Like a one-off with Donald Trump, and you say they were having a they were they were having a moment, right? They were they were having a hard time, and uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was awful. And he's you know you we can rehearse here all of the things that people have said about Donald Trump. He spoke for the anger of the bup, 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 bup. We could talk about the consequences of the Iraq War. We could talk about the consequences of the Panic of two thousand and eight on older voters. We can talk about all kind of stuff, and it would all be true. And if you did it one time. Then you'd say it was a weird moment. Something happened, and then they they found a new normal. You renominate him, and if you reelect him, a person who is not just a demagogue, right, but a cruel demagogue, right, a a rotten person, that changes the people who do it, right. And you've talked about this a lot about the consequences uh, for the people. The when and very convincingly, very interestingly, you talked about what were the effects of um, oppression on the oppressors, right? In colonialism and those things, that it was bad for the Raj was bad for Britons too, because it ch it changed their their thresholds. And I I hate the word normalized because of its its overuse, but you define deviancy down in a pretty profound way when you keep doing it. All of that having been said. If you read all of the coverage in the Times and the Post and elsewhere about what Donald Trump's second term would be like, this is, if he's returned, he will implement these policies. He will do these things. The experience of most Americans and most Republicans about Donald Trump's first term was they didn't do anything, right? Um, he didn't uh, destroy NATO. He didn't. It didn't happen that all of the things that people said that he would do, the Muslim ban, and by the way, the things he said he would do, he did not do. Um, the, the policy high water point 
for Trump in his presidency is something that and of, of his own agenda was something that another Republican would not have done. And that is the renegotiation of NAFTA. Uh, that probably would not have taken place in a Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush. I, I doubt that it would have. Um, and, but it was not renegotiated into something weird. It was renegotiated, uh, with different terms. It was the same idea, but negotiated with different terms. Other than that, Donald Trump ended up producing a pretty conventional Republican presidency, a lot of conservative judges, a big tax cut, uh, more defense spending. Those, those things are what they are. These articles that suggest if Donald Trump is reelected, he, the Heritage Foundation will write the blueprints for the federal government. All of these things will happen. I don't even think that's true because I think I know what a second term for Donald Trump would look like, and it would be wild. It would be corrupt. It would be nutso because of who the people, having been there one time, he would know, right? Well, we don't want Bill Barr in here. We don't want we don't want Jim Mattis in here. We don't want these squares that are going to say eh, that's actually very illegal. Uh, that's actually very unconstitutional. That's actually we very- want Tom Fitton. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you the hardcore and and a cottage industry, uh, no, a real industry of Trump uh, policy people sucking up to Trump does exist out there. Um, but the most important thing that Trump would be looking for would be absolute sycophants. He's, he would not end up with the same, he believes he, he believes he won last time. He believes he'll win again. And it's not going to be like Chris Christie and Mike Pence come in and on, on, on off the hip, put together an administration. He knows the people that he'd want to do. Oh, and by the way, get ready for if Trump gets reelected, a lot of acting, for sure. Uh, agency heads. Oh, not confirmed. Okay. Well, you'll have to, you'll have to pass a uh, legislation. You'll need 60 votes in the Senate to strip this person of their acting title. Oh, and you can't get the Republicans to go along with that. Okay, fine. So that's uh, a, a much more uh, vindictive, chaotic, and... Uh, so that assumes that what would probably be a Republican Senate wouldn't confirm a bunch of his choices, which I think is quite possible. Yeah, because there would be, I'm sure, choices that, uh, I'm sure Tom Fitton, right. uh, 51, uh, yeah, unless the Republicans ended up with a 55, 56 seat majority, which I don't think it is likely, there would be Mitt Romney uh, or who met, well, let's see, will he be gone by He'll be then? Gone, right? Won't he He'll be gone. gone. Susan Collins is not going to say, sure. Secretary Fitton, welcome aboard. Right. Um, so th all of that is ahead. As far as the appetite among Republicans for hatred, right, uh, for calling people um, vermin and for the rise of Nazism uh, or fascism inside the Republican Party, no doubt there is an audience, right? No doubt there is an audience in the Republican Party for that kind of stuff, right? And it's the same, it's the same audience, by the way, that liked... Um, uh, what was the name of the mayor of Philadelphia? Um, Rizzo, mm -hmm. um, who, you know, challenged the gangs to a fight with the cops when he was police commissioner <laughs> and talked about the scum and did all that stuff of, of the kind of Giuliani um, pugnacity and, and that stuff. 
yes, there's an audience for it. It's always been there. By the way, there is also an audience in the Democratic Party for people who uh, say the worst things imaginable about Republicans or about capitalism. There's or capitalists. There's there there's always an audience for that among angry people, uh, many of whom. Uh, have personal experiences that have shaped them, but just a lot of people that they've they've marinated in a world wrestling federation, uh, sports shock jock talk uh, world where that's and they watch too many movies and that's that's where they are. I think um, most Republicans in Washington would be perfectly fine with Donald Trump getting the nomination again and then losing, right? Uh, you get your voters out, they turn out, the Trump voters turn out, maybe you flip Pennsylvania, maybe you flip Ohio. Uh, uh, Trump turns out turns out the, the new working class Republican base. He loses the presidency, Republicans get the Senate, and then Trump's all done. And I understand that calculation because it is the path of least resistance. And you figure the general electorate will take care of Trump. And that's what the bright boys in Washington say and think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of, uh, it's sort of like what they did on Trump's lawsuits after the election. Well, you got to let it play out, mm -hmm. right? You just got, you got to let it work its course. You can't fight it. Or the decision not to convict him when he was impeached for January 6th. Well, look, yeah, yeah, I hear you. But you got to let this play out. Um, I agree with you. I don't think the Republican Party has a burgeoning interest uh, in fascistic uh, power grabs and the, uh, the oppression of uh, political opponents. But I do think that if Trump pulls this off and gets back into the White House, the lasting effects on the Republican Party will be profound. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. One of the things I've been struggling with on this podcast for quite a while now is our friend George Will, you know, uh, after his last book came out, he came on here and he said, look, small committed ideological minor committed ideological minorities move the world, right? And he was absolutely right about that. That doesn't mean that every small committed ideological minority wins, right? It just means right. that some of them do because like right. know, we, the, the Fabian socialists are, you know, and the, are going to, let's put it, the post liberals will probably go the way of the, of the Fabians and the, and the Shakers. But a group, but a group of fishermen from the Galilean Sea 
did end up having a, a pretty profound effect on world history. Yeah, well, and, and a bunch of Bolsheviks did, and a bunch of Jacobins did, and a bunch of weird Enlightenment-thinking British colonists did, a bunch of neocons did. I mean, like, there are lots of... Yep. Basically, every every successful ideological movement starts as a small minority movement, right? right. And so, but even the ones that fail can do enormous damage, particularly when they are inside the White House. And so, you know, the the one of the most troubling things for me was the... I can't remember if it was the Washington Post or the New York Times, but the big piece about the, the, this sort of heritage, whatever these other America's first institute or whatever, I, whatever the, the MAGA think tanks are, they're looking to find non-federalist society lawyers because as someone put it, federalist society lawyers don't know what time it is, right? And <laughs> for those who don't know, know what time it is, is this, is this, uh, code phrase uh i always read it as hail hydra yes it's basically you are part of the red-pilled flight 93 world where you think america is on the precipice of total implosion and therefore you need to fight by any means necessary fair or unfair principled or unprincipled legal or illegal to ensure their survival of somebody for something and and right. it's this code for people who are switched on to this to use the term yes. correct term bullshit and um yes. and so the 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 interesting thing to me is when you play out what that actually entails right because they're not going to get a lot of maga judges right a lot of non-federalist society maga politics as the crow flies do whatever the dear leader wants judges appointed what they're going to do is get really fifth and sixth rate crappy lawyers uh, the Tom Fitton type. So Tom Fitton, let us be clear, for people who don't get the reference, he's the head of Judicial Watch who told that told Trump he had no problem uh, keeping classified information um, because of some completely irrelevant case that he Judicial Watch had against the Clintons. And oh, by the way, Tom Fitton's not a lawyer, uh, <laughs> which is the best part of it. <laughs> and uh, but you should see what he can bench press. Yeah, but he is he is like a lot of these guys who know what time it is. He he eats a lot of creatine powder and has very large biceps and swole. Um, and so it seems to me that the sort of Bananista types, what their plan is, is to do lawless things and then have lawyers defend them in court and then lose. And then they get to say either Andrew Jackson style, they've made their decision. Now let them see him. Let's see him enforce it and throw us into a constitutional crisis or galvanize and radicalize a big chunk of the GOP to be like, we were stabbed in the back by these rhino judges. Um, this shows you how corrupt and pervasive the deep state is. Um, and create a whole different kind of radical politics out of that. And that's not either Nazism or fascism, although, you know, there's some parallels, obviously. Um, but it's really, really bad. And I can just see it coming down the pike. And... Um, and I don't think it really matters whether the average Republican pro-Trump voter wants that or not. They will go along with it the same way Mike Lee goes along with this stuff when it actually happens. Yeah. I mean, look, the there's a lot of ruin in a nation, but there is a limit. What we saw with George W. Bush in his signing statement on the McCain-Feingold campaign, I think this is unconstitutional, but... I'm going to sign it anyway because that's what the people want 
or in Barack Obama and the Dreamers. I don't have the powers of a king. Oh, well, uh, maybe I do. We'll, we'll see what the courts say. And then with uh, Trump being seven times refused by Congress, even under Republican control, in uh, money for the border wall and say, okay, well, I'll just take it from the Department of Defense. You can, you can, you can take me to court. You can sue me. Um, and then Biden, <clears throat> excuse me, and then Biden famously, and a, a most effulgent example, hey, I think you should you extend the moratorium on evictions. Nancy Pelosi, nah, we'd rather not. Why don't you just do it? Okay, well, I don't think I have the power, but maybe the Supreme, we'll see what the Supreme Court says. That's a, that's a real garbage way to uh, protect and defend the Constitution. And the game that parties have been playing for a long time is exactly what you say. Okay, we probably don't have the power to do this. It's probably going to fail, but at least we'll get to say that it wasn't our fault that we tried. Right. At least we at least we tried to do this and the, we'll, we'll be able to blame the courts, particularly if the courts belong to another party. Um, I think exactly that's what would happen in a Trump, a, um, a Trump presidency. We have been we have been living through a constitutional stress test for a long time in the United States now. Right. Um, and it, it is ongoing the stress test that Trump would bring would be enormous, right? Um, what would Trump, what would Trump say and do if he were on the two yard line of the Republican nomination? And let's say Nikki Haley was giving him hell. Let's say it was like, oh, okay, well, you know, she, she's finished second again and again, and she, she's right there. And Super Tuesday wasn't decisive. Uh, now we're on to Georgia. Now we're on to other states. And, and we'll see what happens from here. What wouldn't Trump say or do to assuage uh, the Republican electorate? Yes, he would say, oh, as running, he would start immediately sucking up to the Haley wing of the party. Maybe he would even choose her as his running mate. Um, but I, I highly doubt that in power, um, he would make the same mistake from his point of view of surrounding himself with competent, um, law abiding people. I think that the, I, th I think in the, the story of the Trump presidency, there are a lot of people around Trump that basically say Bannon was right. Reince Priebus was wrong. The mainstream people were wrong. You shouldn't have had them around. You should have had uh, your cadre of ultra loyal, uh, morally flexible, uh, radicals around you, and we would have we would have seen what happened. Yeah, I mean, I get morally flexible, but sometimes it, some of these people are turning into immorally rigid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know you got to go. I, I feel a little guilty that it was all this dark punditry. Do you have exciting Thanksgiving plans? Are you? Do you have unusual West Virginia ways of cooking a turkey that the world needs to know about? Well, will this this will be published after Thanksgiving, or will it be published? On or before? Uh, on and immediately after, right? So okay, yeah. I, it's up to a dime. He's I, a little. He's got a little flexibility given the week we are having. So I, um, I have very strong feelings about. You would not not be surprised to learn that I have very strong feelings about Thanksgiving dinner. You know, obviously some normal ones should be in the afternoon. Should be during the day. Should not be like three an evening. 
Yeah, three uh-huh. is great. Okay. Two to anytime, two to four, super. Um, I think I think that's good. I'm big on a relish tray. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think you need pickles and olives, maybe even some celery. Um, but I think you need that on the table. I think that's important. And I also feel strongly about my favorite dish for Thanksgiving, which is the dressing. Whether you cook it inside the bird or outside the bird, that's up to you. That's 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 anybody's choice. My sister uh, certainly uh, feels strongly about putting it in the bird. That's fine. Oh, actually, I learned something very interesting about this. Uh, much has been invested in the debate over dressing versus stuffing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, dressing is a uh, is more common in the South. People say dressing in the South. They say stuffing in the North and West basically is how it breaks down. I've done the research. And because of the invention of stovetop stuffing in 1973 uh, and the way that Americans uh, enjoy and perceive the dish, that predates, by the way, the modern discussion about stuffing versus dressing and uh health and safety considerations um, that I think that the breaking out of the bird part of it predates those considerations fairly dramatically. But I learned the most fascinating thing, which is the split was not about how the dish was prepared. Mostly the split was about women not wanting to say stuffing. Hmm. Um, And that in the, uh, a hundred years ago, or in the late 19th century, there's a um, a dirty uh, connotation to stuffing. Interesting, uh, interesting. Whereas dressing sounds ladylike, mm-hmm. and it sounds to the Victorian ear, uh, sounds much less graphic than stuffing something. Uh, and in, so we get dressing out of a desire to be proper, uh, to be, to be prim sounding and chaste sounding as opposed to the more carnal delight of stuffing, which I found extraordinarily interesting. That is actually, that's legitimately interesting. I mean, last time you were on here, you gave me the Jewish Irish nexus of corned beef. Um, oh, um, um American foodways, I'm I'm here I'm here for you, but I do believe that dressing or stuffing, whatever you call it, should be simple, should be humble. Uh, it should not have chunks of meat in it. It should not have shellfish in it. It should not have fruit in it. It should be a, a simple, humble dish of bread and celery and some onions. And I publish it each year in the dispatch. My recipe uh, for dressing. You can find it at Steinwald on Politics from last week's edition. I care about these matters, and they they matter to me. Yeah. So I'm I'm I, I I've never been big on the dressing versus stuffing debate. Um, um, I always had this rule of thumb that dressing was cooked outside and stuffing was cooked inside, and that's the difference between the two. It's sort of like yam versus sweet potato. It's like if you want to have an argument about it, there are just better things to have arguments about. But um. Because they're basically the same thing, right? Um, but wouldn't it be wouldn't it be great if people argued about that instead of talking about politics? It would be. We have not yet fully banished the dumb story about how to talk about politics at your family's Thanksgiving. What should you say to your uncle? Well, here's what you should say: nothing. Right. 
You should shut up about politics at Thanksgiving. You should enjoy your family. You should love them for who they are. And you should not talk to them about politics. You should talk about the food. You should talk about football. You should tell jokes. You should do, you should play cards. You should do whatever you want. But for goodness sakes, this is not the time to talk about politics. Yeah. So I, I just wrote my LA Times column, which is up at the dispatch now about this basic point. And I think one good rule of thumb should be you should only talk about people everyone at the table personally knows or is related to. Um, and that will rule out 99% of politics. I mean, sports is different, you know, but I'm talking about, you know, like make it about friends, family, memories, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I disagree with you a little bit about the stuffing issue. I, or dressing, I, I, my sister-in-law makes this wonderful sausage-based stuffing that I just think is fantastic. Um, I am a big big proponent of the deep fried turkey. Um, and um, I think gravy is the most essential ingredient of the Thanksgiving table. Um, and my mom and now my wife, both my mom, my wife was inspired by my mom. Uh, we find that Yorkshire pudding is oh dear vital to the Thanksgiving table. Oh dear. Um, I do not have the baking skills to pull that off in the slightest, but uh, my wife does, and it's pretty freaking awesome. That's extraordinarily toity. That is uh, uh, quite quite so, Brother Goldberg. Well, my my so. mom was a bit of a hawk wasp um, in some yes, ways. Yes, yes, so, yes. So um, anyway, um, I hope you and the Starwalk brood um, have nothing but a delightful Thanksgiving, and we will. Um, I've put pins in various points of the dark punditry here to return to upon a later date. Um, but uh, among all things, I am grateful to have you at the dispatch and as a friend and as a colleague at the American Enterprise Institute and well, as a guest I on this will, podcast. I will, I will very gratefully be uh, tucking my feet under my Jessica's Thanksgiving table uh, and am, am very glad to be there. And I am sure that one of the people who we know that we will talk about and give thanks for will be you and your Jessica and how lovely it is uh, to have you as friends and have you in our lives. Um, I'm glad you added table at the end of that original sentence because otherwise <laughs> that was too much information. It's a different story. It totally didn't. Dressing, not stuff. And uh, with that, uh, Brother Stywalt, thank you for coming on The Remnant. Okay, so uh, Brother Stywalt has left the studio. I probably shouldn't have dwelled as long or let him dwell on the GOP primary because there were other things that were more fun to talk about and I knew he had a heart out. There are going to be all sorts of like special Thanksgiving podcasts floating around out there in the universe and all that and I generally find most of those things can be kind of smarmy even though Thanksgiving is in fact my favorite holiday and I'll save the smarminess for the solo podcast which I'm still I think going to do um, if Adam will let me. I do hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving. If you have questions, comments, concerns, uh, about uh, this episode or any other. Um, you can always uh, send them along to uh, the remnant at the dispatch.com where um, we will curate the best questions um, for our monthly or semi-monthly or occasional um, AMA episodes. And uh, which which if you're a subscriber to the dispatch, you can find in the skiff, just go to the website and um, drop down under podcasts and you'll find it. And, um, and also, you know, as Christmas time approaches, I would be loathe not to uh, point out that um, a gift subscription to the dispatch is a wonderful thing to do for 
both whoever you give it to for yourself and of course for us. So please think about doing that. Other than that, a happy Thanksgiving um, from me to all of you. And I will see you next time. Oh, how wrong thou art. This is a podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.